welcome to another episode of Goddard in the World podcast. I am your host, Amanda Faye Laxon, and I am thrilled today to bring back uh, to Goddard in the World all-stars, Mike Alvarez and Sam Rebeline. Um, we got together over the summer. Um, I put them together because <laughs> I introduced them over email because I thought they would just love talking to each other, um, especially about horror. And uh, yeah, so so we got together and I really just had no outline for this. <laughs> I, I figured they could uh, take it away. And so they made my job super easy because they were amazing. It was so fun to talk about horror stories and the role of horror in their lives and our psyches and what horror can do. Because horror, I think, can be dismissed as just genre writing, so to speak, uh, quote unquote. And I think that really diminishes the visceral experience of horror and what horror can express. Like, this is something that we talk about in this podcast, what horror can express um, as far as bringing our fears and anxieties to life and dealing with them and becoming the heroes of our stories and sometimes not. Yeah. So it was, it was a really awesome conversation. I am timing the release of this to come out right before Halloween. Um, and so you have probably been inundated with different uh, horror, spooktacular kind of things throughout this month. Um, but I really just wanted to give this conversation to you and um, end the season of horror on, I don't know if you can say a high note, <laughs> but um, yeah. So without further ado, here are Mike Alvarez and Sam Rebeline and our spooky pod. Welcome everyone to Goddard in the World podcast. Today, I am so excited to have two returning guests, Mike Alvarez and Sam Rebeline, and we are bringing you a spooky pod <laughs> for our Halloween episode because they both have a lot of experience with thinking about writing and um, reflecting upon horror. So that's why we have come here today. So first, Mike Alvarez, I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell tell us a, an early experience of like what, what drew you to horror or like early horror story, what, whatever you want. <laughs> sure. Hello, I'm Mike Alvarez. I'm an alumni, a two-time Goddard graduate of the Individualized Studies MA program and then the Creative Writing MFA program. And I am currently a faculty in the Department of Communication at the University of New Hampshire. So hello from New Hampshire. Hello. And my earliest experiences with horror, well, it dates 
gets back to, I wouldn't say pre-verbal stage of my life, but to my very formative years growing up with older brothers who themselves are consummate viewers of horror, Mm. I was exposed early on to 70s and 80s slasher fix. And like uh, Friday the 13th and... Nightmare on Elm Street uh, to go with a more fantastical twist. And also the, not quite a slasher, but Hellraiser series is another one that I grew up with. And it it sets quite the precedent for my taste in horror uh, in later life. Mm. How old were you when you were exposed to these films? Because I know you're younger than me. (laughs) And those are the movies I would have, like, they would have come out when I was pretty young. So, yeah. I would say definitely before I even went to school. So I'm thinking maybe mm. age four. <laughs> <laughs> I, had a, I had a teenage old, my oldest right. brother was a teenager at the time. So right. he would bring home VHS tapes of these movies. That's amazing. And, and I would watch them. <laughs> my parents didn't really do much gatekeeping in the house. Yeah, you're the youngest. They're like, whatever, I'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. That's that's actually how uh, my husband Curtis also started. He was he started watching horror from like a very young age, and so he is sort of desensitized to that to those kinds of like that kind of imagery. not in a terrible way. <laughs> just like he just—he was just used to it. He enjoyed it, and um, his mom. He—he he was the eldest, though, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to account for that in the household. But working mom, you know that maybe that's that's <laughs> that's funny. Awesome. Well, thanks, Mike. And our next guest today is Sam Rebelai. Hey. Take it away. Hey. Um, I graduated from Goddard's MFAW in 2019, which feels like 500 years ago mm. now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I have been, I'm a horror writer. I write mostly short horror stories. As of this recording, my latest publications are in Bourbon Pen Magazine and Coffin Bell Journal which is a really exciting one to be a part of because mm. uh, I think that's a great name. Cool. Um, oh, it's great. I, my earliest experiences with horror, um, I lived in uh, a suburb outside Cincinnati for a while. I was like five, six, seven. And there was a lot of gatekeeping in my house because I was an only child. So I was like, really, the, okay. you know, we can't mess this up. But, um, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think of these movies as horror, but definitely like scary. You know, um, I remember being really little and seeing Jurassic Park um, and like Jumanji and um, mm-hmm. movies like that. Uh, and then I was always looking for new like series to read. And so my mom brought home a stack of Goosebumps books from a random garage sale. Uh, and that was the end. And then I, <laughs> um, I guess like most people, my first like real dive into horror was at a sleepover. Um, and we watched The Ring. Sure. Um, you know, and okay. I went from there. But yeah, I don't know. I When I was eight, we moved from this like big suburban sprawl outside Cincinnati to 
upstate New York. And so the woods felt like mm-hmm. sort of magical and spooky. And so any stories about things lurking in the woods felt very attractive to me as a kid because I feel like I felt that vibe, you know, there's something out there. Yeah. But, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Mike, you, so so we've all been kind of communicating via email um, when I introduced the two, two of you guys. Uh, you mentioned that go- like Goosebumps was something you grew up with as well, right? Yeah, I when well, it, it's a really big part of my childhood when my family immigrated to the U.S., which oh. was around the mid to late 90s. And okay. I was in elementary school and every week the bookmobile would come to my oh, neighborhood awesome. and I would just go in the bookmobile, pick out up to five, six books that I like and mm. read it until the following morning and see how much I could get through. And the Goosebump series was a very pivotal part of that. I would always go to the bookmobile and check out the latest Goosebump titles. Like, I, I mean, there's so many, but when I was a kid, the, the ones that I remember were like, Say Cheese and yes. Die, yeah. or, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the one that I remember to this day. I, I'm thinking, Stay Out of the Basement, yes. and... I'm trying to think, Night of the Living Dummy. Those are like three <laughs> things that, that come to mind yeah. uh, that I remember fondly to this day. I mean, don't ask me what happens in them. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember. But, but I have a fondness for the titles. The cover were especially appealing to the target demographic. And I, I would I would read these stories until 5, 6 in the morning Pretty much, my, my I lived in a multi generational household when I when I my family immigrated to the U.S. So there were eleven of us in the house. Wow. So mm-hmm. it's my immediate family, aunts and uncles, my grandma, and of course pets. And my grandma always the, was always the first to rise. She'd be up mm-hmm. at four or five, and she'd see wow. me reading by the <laughs> by the night lamp in the living room, and she'd tell me go to bed, and, <laughs> and I, I wouldn't. It's just I got to get through this. Like the third, they read pretty quickly these goosebumps books, and I, sometimes I could get through like three, four a night. Wow! And oh wow! That's how I spend my weekend. Oh my gosh! And he's Aww, so good at like, so yeah, fun. he's so do- so good at doing those like cliffhangers too. Like every chapter is what two pages, and then it ends with like someone screaming or some nonsense. And you're like, I have to keep reading. Like <laughs> he was so good yeah, at getting kids to read. Like so impressive. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you remember the content of those? You were having reactions to the ones that he, that Mike was mentioning. <laughs> well, so, do you remember? It's funny. I've been thinking about my relationship with horror a lot. Um, and I, you know, we mm-hmm. were sort of talking about that. Just by the re- one of the reasons that we were talking about doing this over the pandemic, I think I certainly felt this. And I know a lot of other people felt this too, that there was a real push to find stories that were just comforting or sort of familiar or um, purely entertaining. Like I watched all 11 Mm -hmm. seasons of Modern Family in like um, a month and a half, just because it was really entertaining and had heart. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there were all these conversations about, you know, do we write about the pandemic or do we sort of avoid it, you know, in our art? Uh, where do we stand on that? And so a part of that for me was going back and rediscovering Goosebumps and reading okay. some of the ones that I really remembered, like Say Cheese or Die um, was one. 
Stay Out of the Basement and Night of the Loving Dummy, which I did not remember at all. I had such a clear idea of what I thought happened in that one. Like the dummy causes shenanigans, you know? Um, <laughs> and it was so different. And there were so many like haunting scenes, like even reading it as an adult, I was like, Oh my God. And that was such a fun experience. And so I did that with a, a fellow Goddard grad. Actually, we did a little podcast called the book fair boys, where we went back and reread a Aww. bunch of goosebumps and we read some other random ones. Like Bruce Koval was sort of a, an R.L. Stein type author. So we read some of his books, um, but it was fun. And I feel like I got a lot out of it as a writer to really go back and think about what made me originally excited about reading and writing as a kid, you know? Uh, so <laughs> it's just funny to hear that, like some of the ones that I, on um, that show, like, okay, we have to go back and read this one and this one and this one. Uh, were also the ones that you just named. <laughs> and like, those are the ones that really stand out in the canon, you know, um, like those. Mm. And um, I don't know if you remember these two, Mike, but like Escape from Horrorland was another big one. And like... Uh, I remember uh, that, yeah, yes. Uh, and A Night in Terror Tower. <laughs> like there were just so many that I can still visualize the cover. And like, I don't really remember what happened in them, but it just, they were so influential and important to me as a kid. What do you think it is about R.L. Stein in particular that I I don't know if there are authors today that kind of work in that genre and are aimed towards kids because like we we were pretty young when you know pe- like people who read R.L. Stein are pretty young like I remember my sister was reading it in element like later elementary school probably and like early junior high middle school so so what what do you think about his style of writing like makes makes horror accessible but like not I I don't know. I okay, let's just let's just say accessible to youths <laughs> to kids. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to piggyback on what you said. Well, first of all, I the well, obviously the writing style but it almost feels like each of his Goosebumps books uh, is written in a kind of vignette style that mm. is great for any attention span, I should say. And as and Sam ha- had already touched upon this, I mean, you can go through a chapter and it's really short and it really sets anticipation for what comes after and what's so wonderful about that is, I mean, as a kid, I, I guess I'll speak from my own perspective. I and 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 the, in some ways, this endures even till this day. I like short chapters now, mm-hmm. and I liked short chapters as a kid because mm-hmm. it gives me a sense of fulfillment. Like if yeah. I if I so a chapter that's like two pages, it's mm-hmm. wonderful. Because I could just keep going through it and I feel like I, I'm making so much progress as opposed to slogging through <laughs> treatise length chapters. Right. So I feel like the, I think it's, well, the appeal of an R.L. Stein Goosebumps book, uh, well, it relates to content, but also form. Form is also mm-hmm. important to consider when looking mm-hmm. at its appeal. So there's that. But the funny thing about it is uh, my, my nephews now, I, I have, 
two nephews. Well, they're both teenagers now, but when they were younger, they also loved Goosebumps. And they're obviously mm. a generation removed from me. So right. there's something about his writing that isn't necessarily bound to the 90s, that, that yeah. didn't appeal only to the to to the target demographic of the 90s. But mm-hmm. so, or me, I mean, I, I haven't read any R.L. Stein in recent years. Maybe he's, he, he must have had to adapt his writing style to the generation over the years. But it speaks to being able to just, he, I, I would say he may have, like he has an intuitive sense of what kids like and mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. he might be, that, and that he's attuned to how that might change over time. Yeah, and I think that um, looking back at some of the books, and, and we read the very first one, Welcome to Dead House. I, and in that one, it's about a family who moves into a new house. And, you know, it's uh, not only the house is haunted, but the entire town is composed of ghosts who are trying to get people to move into houses so that they can eat them, and, you know, continue to survive as okay. ghosts. I forget exactly how the bit goes. Mm-hmm. But I think that. That's what he tapped into is the experience of having something that feels mundanely horrific, like you're moving to a new town or it's just another Mm. Tuesday in February and you have to go to school and it just feels sort of benign and shitty in a kid way. You know, Mm -hmm. those were Mm -hmm, sort mm -hmm. of the like big horrors of being seven years old. You're just like, oh, I have this test I have to study for and you know, all this sort of um, small stakes stuff, you know, and all of the Goosebumps Mm -hmm. books seem to present a scenario in which something breaks through that. Like, uh, you know, your dad is unemployed and things are sort of shitty. And then all of a sudden he's a plant monster. You know, Um, there's something Mm. that sort of breaks through that suburban uh, mundanity, which I felt like, was very probably literature and especially kid literature was primed for that in the nineties when it really became an age of like stranger danger and uh, everything tapped right. into that. Like things will break through suburbia and try to hurt you. And as a kid, you're sort of aware of that, but I don't think you really understand it. Like why your parents are so, you know, stressed about it, but goosebumps mm. present scenarios that I think make sense to an eight year old mind and present that horror in sort of a, a palatable way that's more interesting and intriguing than just like and and less horrifying actually which sort of feels funny to say but like it, you know if the story on the news is like there's a man in the van who's gonna get you um you can present that same sort of idea to a kid with the same sort of like dogma and, and orthodoxy of like don't do this or don't do that you know you can present rules to children uh without having it seem scary you know, it's it's monsters instead mm. of pedophiles or whatever it is. You know, but, mm-hmm. but and, and I think that's sort of universal too. In a way, things mm-hmm. have only gotten scarier since the nineties. <laughs> so right. I, I think that that content continues to be intriguing. I don't know. Yeah, I, I actually, yeah, I, I, Sam, hearing you talk about giving a thumbnail summaries of these different titles is actually bringing back so many <laughs> memories of me because earlier I, did, I don't remember what happened in any of these so with Amanda, when you had asked me that question i feel like i'm probably not 
not uh, equipped to answer in terms of content, but I can right. answer in terms of form. But sure. hearing Sam, it, it just occurred to me, yeah, I think one of the really effective things about uh, the Goosebumps uh, books is it, how it taps into cultural anxieties mm. that are really palpable to children. And you, you mm-hmm. mentioned Stranger Danger, and mm-hmm. yeah, I mean I, I, that's that's and and it also brings to mind the idea of the the uncanny mm-hmm. of basically mm-hmm. turning something familiar, but defamiliarizing it to make it unsettling. And a lot of what not just Arlo Stein but horror writers do is turn things that are in our mundane world and imbue them with significance, horrific significance by by turning something familiar into a base distorted version of itself to unsettled readers. Yeah. And, and 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 hearing what you said, Sam, makes me realize that Arlstein does that too, but for a much younger demographic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stephen King talks about that a lot, you know, um, which I, I feel like is sort of the adult version of Goosebumps because Stephen King books just go down like <laughs> butter, you know, they're his prose is so smooth yeah. and effective. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes him so widely popular that even though his books are sort of long mm-hmm. and sort of ponderous, um, and I don't feel like I'm accomplishing a lot in the same way that you were talking about the form of Goosebumps. <laughs> 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 I it does feel like a slog at times, but it, no matter what he's talking about, there's always something that's sort of interesting about it, you know, um, but so it's that same sort of feeling, you know, he talks about the what if, like being able to look at anything and say, okay, what if even this table were spooky? Like, what would that look like? Right. Um, and I think that Arl Stein does that really well for a, a much younger audience. But I think that that's what attracts me to horror in general, just to talk about it more broadly, that you can yeah. use these sort of genre conventions to provide a vocabulary for people to talk about very real horrors. Um, you know, even just in recent memory, like movies like Midsommar and Hereditary are a great way to provide context for discussions about family and loss and what it means to belong and what it means to grieve and things like that. Um, which I feel like is the thing that always attracts me to horror. And I also enjoy movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which doesn't really have anything to say. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What do you think, like, Ari Aster is like, so Stephen King has talked about how, you know, even though this is not what he goes into writing a story thinking it's going to be about like looking at his oeuvre (laughs) at this point in time he's like yeah I guess I am really interested in youth (laughs) you know like that like like a lot of like ghosts haunted him from his like youth um and so what do you think like with Ari Aster like so I've I've only I have seen Midsommar I've seen parts of Hereditary but I like I I I was a little too scared to watch all of it. Um, I saw like the last hour. I know. So I got a little scared. But um, yeah, what do you think he does with his with his movies, with his imagery, um, and like what are his themes that he's kind of trying to explore there? Did you see those, Mike? Both of I, them. I have actually, mm-hmm. and I really 
I mean, I, I really love them. The, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the imagery and how, mm-hmm. how disturbed I felt at the end of both, of both films that mm-hmm. will remain with me for some time. I, I mean, I'm trying to think. I, I mean, the grief is definitely a yeah. large theme in both films, but grief is treated somewhat differently in each of these. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I mean, my first inclination is to say how Ari Aster, I mean, through, these, through his treatment of these two films just complicates our notions of grief Mm. because we Mm. have a very neat and I mean, at least in contemporary Western culture, we tend to package grief in a very neat and compartmentalized way. We have Mm. these prescriptions for how we move through grief. Uh, Mm. You know, we have things like the five stages of grief or even, scholars who've elaborated on these five stages, but by proposing their additional stages. But I, I, I feel as if these two films complicate and push against the idea that grief follows a timetable mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. also th- that grief is, it, it's very individualized in some ways, mm-hmm. but and yet relational mm-hmm. at the same time. But by individualized, I mean different people and groups of people have different timetables for grieving. And mm-hmm. by relational, I also mean, and we see this especially, I think, in Midsommar, the whole idea that grief is not something that individuals go through. Yeah. But right. it's something that we go through in social contexts. So at least mm. that's my, as a death scholar, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am predisposed to look at these movies through that lens. <laughs> sure. Yeah, um, Midsommar really hit me at an interesting point. I mean, I had just read a collection, I'm trying to look at my bookshelf now because I'm not remembering the title. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just read this collection by Priya Sharma called All the Fabulous... Uh, All the Fabulous Beasts, I think it's called. And um, they're Mm. horror stories, but uh, the horror in them often only exists for the reader. And the transformation, like there are a number of stories where people transform into animals or undergo something that is horrific only to read about, but is something sort of uh, purifying or gratifying to them. Like, they there's one character mm. who cuts off someone's hands and he's like great now i've made my art but you're like oh it shouldn't mutilate people um and there's one that really sticks with me where <laughs> this guy i forget exactly how it goes but he sort of turns into a seahorse and the description of him like giving birth you know because he's ejaculating all these baby seahorses is horrific but mm-hmm. it's sort of beautiful for him um, and Midsommar feels like it inhabits the same sort of space where you're watching a transformation that is for that character, Danny, you know, sort of beautiful. And she's just wreathed in flowers and she finally mm-hmm. finds a community that she can grieve with rather than the sort of closed off hyper academic, mm-hmm. like bullshit boyfriend and group that she has been with. Um, you know, she has people who will now scream with her. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that's a really interesting, like complication is a good word for that, Mike, like how we view grief and horror in general, because the perspective of it is, you know, a big part of that, like not only the thing itself, but how we view that. And 
yeah, it just makes me think of like different cultures and, and grief. And I think you make a great point about like contemporary Western culture deals with grief in a very particular way, but that's only one perspective. And I think that's something really interesting to me about horror as well, that you can play with the perspective and create horror in that way, if that makes sense. Mm. That's really interesting. Is is there, when you're saying about like the Western perspective of like grieving, you know, I know, Mike, you've studied grieving across <laughs> and, and films like that are not American. I don't know. Is Ari Aster American? I think he is. Yeah. Or he's at least Western European. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But are there, this might take a turn away from horror, but like, are there films that show the experience of grief to be more communal mm. as like a normal thing from other, from other cultures? Like, can you think of any examples? I, I mean, I can't, at the moment, I can't think of specific examples in film itself, but mm. I could think of a variety of cross-cultural snapshots and practices. Mm. I'm thinking, for instance, and the, uh, uh, Caitlin Doughty, who, who, um, is, who has this YouTube channel called Ask a Mortician and oh. worth, uh, worth checking out. She talks about the Torajans in Indonesia who okay. basically, after the death of their loved ones, they, they don't embalm them, but they, they engage in a variety of practices that preserve the, the body of their dead loved ones and sometimes reside with these bodies for months and even years at a time before they're finally laid to rest. And it's so interesting how here in the U.S. and in other Western contexts, death is hidden behind institutional walls, not just dead, but the dying. People who yeah. are nearing the end of their life are are basically secluded and hidden from view, often left to simmer in their own excreta, you, you know, in very undignified such conditions. And in some ways, I, I, you know, relating to our discussion about horror, body mm -hmm. horror is, mm -hmm. is, is a genre that is, that has exploded. This is the kind of horror that tests the physiological limits of the body. And I, I'd like, I, I think that we have part of the appeal of body horror, like, torture porn horror movies okay. is that it bears for our viewing things that are typically expunged mm. from media and consciousness and because we don't have an intimacy with a human body mm -hmm. and so it becomes a, an object of both fascination and revulsion simultaneously mm -hmm. but it, it, it begs the question of how different cultures with different relationships and orientations to the dead and dying and dying bodies, how they create horror, what to them is horrific. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I couldn't, so I have no answer to your question yeah. with regards to cross-cultural movies about right. dying, but I could think of actual practices and mourning rituals across mm -hmm. cultures outside the U.S. So yeah, that, that was just one example, but there are examples about it. Well, and it's so interesting that you talk about body horror. One of the big influential franchises for me was the Saw franchise, and that was coming out um, mm -hmm. sort of when I was in middle school through high school. And so I remember um, 
you know, getting my hands on some of those movies and like squirreling them away to my room and watching them where my parents couldn't see me on my like old laptop. And um, <laughs> that using those to push the boundaries of what I could handle in horror. But what I love about the, I, I recently rewatched the first seven of those. Oh my gosh, how many? <laughs> there's, um, <laughs> the first there's, there's nine of them. Uh, I think that's right. Nine, okay. The, the ninth one is the Chris Rock one that just came out that I was not a huge fan of. Oh, okay. Uh, but what I love about the huh, first seven is that they all take place in this sort of grungy, like urban setting. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all in shitty bathrooms or abandoned warehouses. And even the scenes that are. Mm-hmm. Uh, set in like inhabited spaces like apartments or whatever and the apartments are just terrible and falling apart Mm -hmm. and um you know the whole bit of that series is you wake up and you're strapped to a thing that you're clearly not going to escape um and uh the tv turns on and you see the face of the puppet you know the famous jigsaw puppet Mm -hmm. um whose name is billy Mm -hmm. i think (laughs) um how much of a soft (laughs) fan i am um but um, <laughs> thinking about them when I was rewatching them recently, what I realized I loved about that is that it presents this ulterior space where it has a specific God in the same way that like Pinhead is a, a God in the Hellraiser universe. And I think as soon as you see mm. the face of this God, you know, like screwed. And there's something that really resonated with me about that because I felt very similarly, you know, especially as an AC teenager, like growing up, that was sort of the way that I, felt it's like god doesn't necessarily have my best interests at heart uh and my parents were pretty religious mm. for a while so we went to church pretty regularly and i was never really on board with it so saw felt like sort of a good way to i don't know embody those feelings just that you exist in a space that is um honest about how grungy the world can be and how mm. um untrustworthy god can be and it's interesting. I mean, what made me think of that is your comment about like pushing an intimacy with your body, Mike. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. was always sort of what that God would say. Like you're about to get really intimate with your body and you have oh, to like, dig a key out of your arm in order to not die or whatever. And oh, wow. so there's always a, a torture porn element, uh, but it does sort of press a relationship with your physical being and that was also something that i struggled with as a kid just like having a relationship with my body you know um so mm-hmm. I, I think that there are so many reasons that saw appealed to me that just you made me think of sort of talking about body horror like but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I, first of all i want to say that you're so good re- with remembering character names i'm rubbish <laughs> when it comes to remembering names of characters because i wanted to for instance earlier i wanted to talk about plot points from 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 midsummer to relate oh to what gosh. i was saying but i thought i don't remember any of the characters <laughs> and you're so great at it so that's thank you. So, oh my gosh. thank you for that another thing that i when you were talking about the saw series mm. i remember how i um oh. and this is so this is like totally random anecdote but i Back when I was much younger, I I I, ha- I went on uh, you know I went on a date a few dates with this 
this guy and <laughs> our dates consisted of going to the movies to see horror. And oh, our okay. very first date was, uh, I mean, how romantic, right? She <laughs> <laughs> saw three in the theaters, oh, and man. then it was, um, <laughs> it was, and then it was Sweeney Todd, not quite horror, but still has that body horror totally. element woven sure. into it. And then Valentine, that that movie with David Boreanaz, that slasher pick. Oh, anyway, just random memory. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. another a thing that you raised that I that I really like is how you, you talked about how Jigsaw and the the setting and the aesthetic of the Saw franchise really resonated with you when you were, as you describe yourself, uh, an angsty teenager. And it made me think about, and I don't have extensive thoughts on this, but it just made me think about how these iconic figures in horror, like Jigsaw, Pinhead from the Hellraiser, that that these iconic figures are for traumatized people, maybe mm-hmm. even people who we can call disenfranchised, can are sort of patron saints for the traumatized. Totally. And yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have any more to say than that, oh, but it just like, brings up. <laughs> it's such a good line. I think that's so true, and um, I'll, I'll drop more character names. Um, uh, <laughs> Thank like, you. When you go to Camp Crystal Lake, you are at the mercy of the god mm-hmm. of that world. You know, Jason Voorhees controls mm-hmm. that landscape. And people have, there's already academic work done on how he is a God figure. Like he controls the weather and thing and can clearly teleport. Mm. Um, And uh, I was also a huge fan of Friday the 13th. Um, And possibly for that reason, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Freddy Krueger is clearly the God of the dreamscape, you know? Um, Yeah. I, I, I like um, some of the Halloween movies, but the Halloween franchise as a whole definitely appeals to me less than Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. And I think that that might be an element of why, uh, because he is not the God of that world. The narrative of those movies is always mm-hmm. like Michael is coming home or Michael is coming in. And the story of the other entering a space rather than you are entering another space, I, I think just mm. appeals to me less. And Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, that makes me think of a whole other <laughs> branch of things. But like one of my all-time favorite horror movies is The Blair Witch Project, which certainly inhabits that same type okay. of narrative that you are entering a space you do not control. And I think that mm. even as like a, I guess I saw that when I was 12, <laughs> like too early, but uh, <laughs> uh but that is certainly how I felt. You know, I, I didn't feel in, in control of my world in a number of different ways and, and my body. And mm-hmm. so I think movies like that just really, really appealed. And I'm trying to think of other movies that are like, instead of entering another space, like the other comes in. Did you see uh, Cabin in the Woods? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that that was that's an example of what I like that I mean clearly manipulate like, like I mean they 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 know what they're doing but like yeah that's what I was thinking about when you were talking about manipulate or like the, the people entering a space but they don't realize it's the space which is like very fascinating and then we get to see so much behind the scenes 
of the like God space, yeah. <laughs> which, which I love. And it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) I I think trauma is a huge part of that too. You know, that's something I think I talked about this last time I was on the show even, but like, you know, there are a lot of horror filmmakers who talk about who you identify, like the the person with the ax or the teenagers who are getting killed. Right. And uh, I felt like a long time that I, uh, these uh, figures, you know, Jason and whoever else were sort of my patron saints because they were killing the popular cool, hot kids, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and that was Mm -hmm. a good way to sort of release those feelings that I had during the day at school and just sort of get rid of them in a safe space. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know if you felt similarly, Mike, like when you were experiencing horror, um, when you were in grade school or high school, like if you felt like these were patron saints, even on a subconscious level, then. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely. I, I, you brought up a really great point about audience identification. Who do we identify with? Do we identify mm-hmm. with the one wielding the, the 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 means of others' demise, or the ones who are at the end of the chopping block? And and I, it just brought an example that I think, in some ways, ca- encapsulates that. Um, Maybe it doesn't quite fall in the genre of horror, but ha- have you both seen Teeth? Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, Amanda, have you seen Teeth? Um, no, I haven't seen it. So, it plays with this psychoanalytic um, idea, the vagina dentata. Ah, so, got it. And so, I we, know that I know that myth. <laughs> <laughs> so, you have a main character who basically has teeth in her vagina, but uh-huh. but you you identify with her and root for her. And mm-hmm. in some ways, speaking of patron saints, it, she is. Uh, it, it's so funny because I've asked my friends about how they felt about this movie and most of my male and I would qualify saying heterosexual friends right. often feel threatened with emasculation mm-hmm. and, and castration seeing this movie. But then if we think of of the character, the main character, the, the heroine of, of Teeth as a patron saint, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, in some ways she is a patron saint for for women and others who have been, you know, subject to sexual abuse, uh, mm-hmm. you know, bodily assaults on bodily integrity, and so mm-hmm. forth. Yeah. So I, I mean, yeah. So it's just uh, uh, many ways that uh, that in some ways a lot of these figures uh, serve these cathartic and emotional identifications for various audiences. But going back to your original question, Sam, I I, I definitely remember rooting for the underdog characters who end up Mm -hmm. being the survivors of Slasher Fix, you know? Yeah, and um, it's funny because you're talking about teeth and um, I, as you were talking, I was like, yeah, that's true. Like it is um, sort of, uh, anti-heterosexual male. So as a heterosexual male, why did I like that movie? Like, why did I identify with her? And then as soon as you were like survivors of trauma and sexual abuse, I was like, oh, that's got to be it. Um, I mentioned very briefly, um, I was uh, molested when I was six by a neighbor. Uh, he went to jail. It's all like in the past now. Um, <laughs> but um, 
I, I shouldn't I, laugh, but you were well, smiling, and I don't know if people are going to hear that. Yeah. So I, I, like, I always oh, try to like okay. say it in a way that uh, I'm like, I, there's nothing that you need to like say or do. Like I'm, I'm cool yeah. sharing the story now, but right. uh, which is why I try to like smile when I say it, because otherwise people are like, "Are you okay?" And I'm like, "Yeah." but it's a podcast i can see you our listeners can't see you and they're just gonna hear me laugh (laughs) (laughs) visual information really dumb Um, (laughs) no thank you um but i definitely uh i think that that is a whole other layer to those patron states and to final people as well Mm -hmm. not just final girls but you know a number of them are, are men or sort of vacillate between gender you know that that's a whole interesting study on its own but it makes me think Mm -hmm. about uh you know we were emailing a bit about fear street the new fear street movies that came out um and that was certainly another element that came up for me as well you know there's this one really like sort of um pudgy nerdy kid in glasses and that was really how i identified myself as in like 10th grade so watching this character i was like why do i want this character to like, why am I still identifying with the dude with the axe if I also see myself in this character? And I think that that mm. now, as an adult, that I've been through so many versions of myself, I feel like that's another element of slashers as well for me, that you're, like, killing other past versions of yourself. Like, you know, here's the nerdy, like, 13-year-old kid, whack. Um, and, like, here's this, like, identity I had in college, like, whack. Um and that was certainly mm. how I navigated through the second part, at least, of the Fear Street trilogy. That's interesting. Now, I you were you were talking about in in the emails. You mentioned that you were really interested right now in uh, reader response theory. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that or criticism? I don't know if it is it reader response theory or criticism I um but yeah um, I, I always say theory but i guess um it's a okay yeah. <laughs> uh, i mean it's like a literary criticism yeah, it's a <laughs> guess, critical yeah. theory um but it's it's just yeah. the idea that you are creating a text by engaging with it so the story doesn't necessarily happen mm-hmm. uh unless and until you are reading it yourself you know, I got really interested in that mm-hmm. when Game of Thrones was coming out and characters were dying and I would like go back and watch old episodes and be like, oh, I am unable to see now that this character is alive in this scene because I have already responded to the text of them being dead. Um, oh, and okay. a really easy example of that is that um, Sesame Street book. Like, there's a monster in this book. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so yeah. that's yeah, like crime reader response theory, and that like you're the one turning the page, so you're the one who's going to unleash the monster. And the whole book is Grover mm. saying, like, "Don't turn the page. You're the one who's going to release the the thing." And then by the end, he's like, "Oh, I was the monster in the book." <laughs> and uh i i just think that's great i think about that a lot in my own writing and how we engage with texts and how narrators of texts work like another kid's book that i'm reading now is by Roald Dahl it's called the twits um and uh Mm -hmm. the first chapter is an i narrator saying like talking about beards and um you don't really excuse me you don't really know who that narrator is and so you're left to assume that it's Roald Dahl and I'm just really interested in how that works and Mm. 
how we engage with that story then. Yeah, I I um I guess I I was thinking about like I like I identifying with the story like I don't know what I was thinking about when I when I read those words together. <laughs> but I think I was thinking that it was something about how, like what we take from the story, like mm-hmm. um like the story and and as writers as all of us being writers like you know we know that when we put something out in the world it doesn't matter what what our intention was it it matters what people yeah. get from it you know like we could talk about our intention all we want but like the meaning um, only exists with the reader but if, yeah it's certainly a part of it too right yeah right. it brings to mind this uh sylvia plath actually says of her writing that once she produces poetry and shares it with the world that the right of interpretation now belongs mm-hmm. to the reader and mm-hmm. it speaks to the idea that uh, i mean i think traditionally texts literary texts etc have been approached as if meaning resided within the text which mm-hmm. treats meaning as something that is singular and decipherable with those privileged with the knowledge and authority to decipher mm. them. But the idea of, I, I would think like, you know, read a response theory, but even the larger cultural studies tradition is that in some ways, meaning doesn't exist solely in the text, but meaning is in the interface between the text and its audience. And that, mm-hmm. and because of that, meaning is not singular, but can be plural. Yeah. So it's it's a cool idea. I would wager, and this is a question I have for you too, Mike. Um, I would wager that that's another part of the push towards stories that are simply entertaining in the last year and a half or so, um, simply because there's maybe a push towards like wanting to be told or, or um, wanting less to be told what to think. Like there's so much dogma and information and competing information and um, false facts and all of this shit that, um, the last thing I want to do is watch a a movie or read a book that has a singular meaning and and rather Mm. just want something that I can interpret and enjoy on my own terms. Um, and so my question, like, do you feel, or how do you feel like your tastes have changed in the last year and a half when we've all been at home trying to survive? Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. a really good point. I, I mean, first I want to touch on what you just said about how we are, you know, the past, well, the past several years, but more concentrated in the past 18 months since the big pandemic began, it's just we are in inhabiting an ecology of disinformation, mm-hmm. noise, and, mm-hmm. and misinformation that is vying for our attention. And I, I, I really, and it's hard to have agency mm-hmm. when you are in the sea of misinformation because you don't know that if the information that you are acting on is credible and with if you don't know if what you're acting on is credible credible it undermines the action that you are making or thinking of making and it's really interesting that you point that out because and related to horror and consumption of media texts because that's so true like maybe our the pandemic and but also the the sea of truth and untruth that surrounds us has pushed us to try to seek greater agency in our own Mm -hmm. meaning making. And because Mm -hmm. of that, that's inflected our 
consumption and viewing practices over the past year. So so on the more theoretical level, but at a more grounded level, at the Mm -hmm. level of my own personal experience, I'm trying to think because I found, and not just horror, I found myself seeking out more fantastical texts. So I mm-hmm. have been watching media on witches a lot. Okay. <laughs> one one thing that I've become really obsessed with is this show called uh, Motherland for oh, Salem. I don't know if yeah, you've heard of it. Yeah, it's it's really good. I really enjoy it. And the premise is that imagine if witches were real, and right. during the Salem witch trials, that in order to escape prosecution, which is mm-hmm. agreed to help the United States win its war. So, okay. uh, so it's an alternative and fantastical history of the U.S. where witches constitute solely the military force of the U.S. Whoa. So, oh, wow. And, and it's, it's really cool the way the magic system works because I am a sucker for magic systems and the logic <laughs> behind them. Love and, it. And, and, the, and how how they are enacted and the rules governing their execution. I'm a sucker mm-hmm. for that. And, and, <laughs> and I found myself gravitating to that, those kinds of texts, texts that uh, narratives that in some ways reimagine how things are. If X, Y, or Z were introduced in the, the, this point of the historical continuum. So mm. I would say that uh, to, to, to return to your question, Sam, I, I found myself drawn to, for some reason, because of this pandemic, I have had little less patience for, for fiction that's grounded in quote unquote reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, right. and, and that rules out things like drama, rom-com. <laughs> and and I, I found myself more drawn towards sci-fi, fantasy, yeah. and sure. even horror, but even in my, uh, yeah, horror. And so the Fear Street movies are, was just such a welcome, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> like addition to my summer view. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you talk about um, a clear, you know, in an age of, um, overwhelming disinformation having a text that you can turn to that has a clear set of rules and a clear logic even if it's fantastical feels really like a like a boon like something calming that you can turn to and be like at least in this world even if it's an alternative history things make sense and have a clear set of like just that magic system is is very black and white i imagine as all good magic systems are in fantasy like <laughs> Yeah, there's good rule. Yeah. Like they should have set rules, uh, for sure. How about you, Sam? What what have you gravitated towards? Oh, um, since we've all been living <laughs> under this I horror, been, I should have been ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know. Sorry. <laughs> um, I do find that I have turned towards. Um, uh, well, I feel like horror works the same sort of way. Like across the genre, um, there are clear rules that you have to follow and there's something comforting in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, you don't go in the basement, you don't whatever. And, um, I've also been turning towards narratives that, well, I've been reading a lot of like indie sort of paperback new release horror. Cause I've been trying to stay on top of like, that's certainly been a project this last year. It's like trying to see what is coming out in the literary scene and stay on top of that. Um, mm-hmm. 
but also uh, stories with heart, uh, I guess, like stories where there is a, a clear lesson or moral. I just finished watching BoJack Horseman, which took me a while to watch okay. because a lot of people uh, recommended it to me who I like, didn't really trust their opinions or whatever, but <laughs> um, <laughs> their tastes, you know. Um, a lot of like film that. majors who'd be like, you got to watch it. And I'd be like, yeah. all right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Off. <laughs> big shout out to my friend Hannah, who was the one who finally got me to, to get through it. And um, okay, I good. wept. I, I really like the oh. ending of the show really got to me. And it's a, a very, at the end of the day, a very well-told story about um, addiction and grappling with things that you've done that will not heal, things that you've done to other people and to yourself, and how do you continue living with that? Uh, and I, I just thought mm-hmm. that, you know, because it's, it's a big time of transition for me. I just moved to Texas, I'm starting a PhD in two days. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, so having that narrative at this time felt very significant to me. Like, you know, life will continue no matter what. And I think that those are the sorts mm. of narratives that I've really clicked with this last year or this last 18 mm-hmm. months. But how about you, Amanda? What have you That's turned awesome. to? Oh, I've just been rewatching sitcoms. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, or, or watching some new like comedies, uh, newish to new to me. And I think part of that is just like the comfort thing. Like you're saying about like binging modern family, like, or stuff like that. I just need some need to know where something is going. (laughs) So it's been hard for me to watch new stuff. We started watching Handmaid's Tale, like the recent season. And I had to quit. I was like, uh, it's too much for me right now. <laughs> like I can't, I'm like stressed out. So, um, it, I mean, it's, you know, well designed and all of that, obviously well acted, but I was like, I'm, I'm too stressed out. I can't do yeah. it. <laughs> so we, so we quit, but yeah, like I, I, I really do understand. Like, I think Mike, you were talking about wanting something that is, like finite and grounded <laughs> like cuz i was thinking about all of this like misinformation that that some people have grabbed onto um and the conspiracy theories and all of that and the boogeyman and all of those things and i think that is like a like with horror it is like very telling of the need to make sense of this very scary moment in time. And the conspiracy theories make it concrete. There's like a clear person to blame and it's not me, you know, like, or it's not you, you know, like the person who is believing those things, it's someone else outside. And if we can just fix that thing, then everything will be okay. And so I think it's very, it's, it's too simplistic, like for, for our real life, you know, like for, for the, for the life we're currently living, I think there's no motivation. Like it, 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 there, there's no real clear motivation for someone having set up this whole COVID-19 pandemic. It like, I don't know what 
horror stories are going to come out of this because that kind of fear of the unknown and not knowing who the enemy is. I mean, there's plenty of stories like that. <laughs> the thing, you know, yeah. like I think is a great one. Not knowing the enemy, not knowing who to trust, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that paranoia, <laughs> being afraid of air, <laughs> like, you know, is like, I mean, I guess there are plenty of stories already. Like, you know, someone's just going to mash them all up. Um, but it's funny that you, uh, it's funny that you meant like talk about it that way because it makes me think that the paranoia and not knowing who to trust mm-hmm. was prevalent years before the pandemic even started like sure the whole like oh, 2015 yeah. leading up to the 2016 election you know and i mean this not to say like yeah, one political side or the other but just like in general i think people were having trouble identifying who they could talk to like even um people who yeah. uh were planning to vote for trump uh had mm-hmm. struggles trying to figure out who exactly you could say that to I did not vote for Trump. Mm. I, I just want to be clear. <laughs> um, <but> just like <laughs> it's <yeah>. still sad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think that that atmosphere was already so palpable, um, and I think that yeah, I sort of carried that through into the new year of 2020, and it felt like to me and to a lot of people I know that like 2020 was going to be our year. Like for whatever reason, mm-hmm. we decided like this is going to be the year that. Um, things are going to be a little bit better. And then it immediately was not. And I think that the exhaustion that we're <laughs> feeling now is not just the pandemic, but the last several years of just like wanting to feel yeah. better and not feeling that way <laughs> at all. Um, and it just getting like significantly yeah. worse and worse. Um, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. It just made me think of that. Yeah. Amanda, I appreciate the linkage and you too, Sam, that you made about conspiracy theory and, managing ter- terror because mm-hmm. i mean in the schizophrenia you know, literature for example there is a there is what the um, clinicians call the um the influencing machine and what the influencing machine is this recurrent feature in the delusions or ideations of people with um you know psychoses for whom there is a thin line between objective and subjective reality so the influencing machine is like this concrete machine in that features in many delusions. It varies from person to person. But mm-hmm. the whole idea is that if you can make fears that are nebulous and inchoate mm-hmm. and unexplainable concrete, mm-hmm. then it gives you a sense that you can at least address it. Mm-hmm. Right. I, and in some ways that that's applicable to the current situation we we are facing with the rise and ubiquity of conspiracy theories because in some ways we can think of it as you know we have we are in a sea a great sea of uncertainty and mm-hmm. conspiracy theories are promising because they give false assurance mm-hmm. that our fears that are boundless our anxiety our boundless anxiety can somehow be encapsulated and contained and made concrete, but of course, mm-hmm. this doesn't excuse necessarily are you know the the people who propagate these theories. Right. But it does right. somehow give some kind of partial explanation to the allure of conspiracy theories in the first place. And when we think of it in relation to horror, it, horror is a is in some ways a, a ways of making concrete fears 
And when right. fears are made concrete, they become actionable. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, and horror always confirms conspiracy theories. Like conspiracy theorists are always correct mm-hmm. in a horror space. I mean, if you're reading or viewing a text in which a character says there are thing, you know, X is in the town. X has to then exist in the town because that's created this Chekhov's mm. gun. You know, um, not only like as soon as you mention that there's going to be a big dance, the viewer or the audience will think, oh, that sounds nice. You know, in the same way that you're like, <laughs> I said the same thing, I think, last time I was on the podcast. But like, as soon as you mention a grilled mm. cheese, you're like, oh, that sounds good. Like everyone hears that. We'll empathize <laughs> with that. And, and so I think, right. you know, that's true for conspiracy theorists at large. Like there is a part of everyone who engages with, you know, an alien conspiracy theory who would like to see an alien and would like them to exist. And conspiracy theories will always confirm that. And horror will always confirm that narrative and that character. Mm-hmm. So. That's such a great <laughs> point about that's so right. that conspiracy theories are always correct in horror. Yeah. In the fictional mm-hmm. diegetic space of horror, it's always the person who is espousing these <laughs> yeah. outlandish theories. It's always the same one. That's so yeah. true. Right. right. Yeah, I was like, I was thinking about. Scream was on the other day oh. on TV the other day, and so uh, it's it's so good. It's still mm-hmm. so good. <laughs> but um, uh, Seth Green, um, you know when he's like describing the rules of what's gonna happen, I'm like, this is so brilliant. Like just like calling it, and like I'm like clearly, I. <laughs> I didn't know at the time that I watched Scream the very first time that this was a master of horror who was right who had made this made that movie. But um, yeah, I was like, oh, that's so interesting. He has such a perception. Little did I know. I mean, he does. <laughs> well, it's funny that he's like the yeah. uh, nerd archetype that in seventies and eighties mm-hmm. slashers was always sort of frowned upon and made fun of and poo pooed. And now he's the arbiter mm-hmm. of this um, knowledge that is essential to survival. Mm-hmm. The way that um, right. Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson is the dude who wrote it. The way that they yeah. turn that arch- even that archetype on its head. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's see. I think we're coming close to the end of this fascinating discussion. I just don't want to keep you guys too late. but. Um, what I don't know if asking what scares you <laughs> right now is the best closing question, <laughs> but let's start there and then we, and then we'll do something that's easier to <laughs> transition out of. So, what scares you? Like, what what is scary to you these days? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is well, I, I mean, I I'm less than two weeks away from starting the semester and and Sam, it seems Mm -hmm. you're starting the semester even sooner than I am. And I I think what scares me, I suppose it's more of an anxiety rather than outright fear Mm -hmm. is, is the idea of stepping into a classroom and just not knowing Mm -hmm. what, what, because I, I I mean, I was looking forward to teaching Mm -hmm. this, this fall. I'm teaching a course called Mental Illness in the Movies at, here mm. at U, UNH. That's and awesome. and it's a subject that I really love and care about and very deeply personal to me and I'm sure to 
quite a number of students who will be taking it. And it, because I, I remember in May, uh, it, there, it, was, it was somewhat of a celebratory moment because I, I attended a, a retirement party for two faculty who are leaving the department and we were for once able to gather outdoors mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. without masking and and it's and it was such a promising moment and it made me really excited for what's to come and for teaching in the fall and because I taught via Zoom in the spring and mm-hmm. I am so excited to just be able to see my students' faces and mm-hmm. be able to stand in front of them and be my idiosyncratic self. And but I, I think there is so much uncertainty mm-hmm. in terms of uh whether I will be able to connect meaningfully with my students because I, I, I love to be personal and personable with my students. And I, you know, I want them to communicate to them that they have that space too. But it's it's so hard to achieve that with this cloud of uncertainty hanging over us all like a, the sword of Damocles, or, you know, so to speak. So I think that's what, what it's not so much, I don't think it sufficiently answers your question, but it is what <sighs> preoccupies me right now. Yeah. 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 Gosh, I, Thank yeah, you. I would agree with that. And uh, I think you worded that so well. You know, Amanda and I were talking before we started that the Delta variant really uh, began to occur as I was moving down here. And I remember not even really paying attention to it because I was just packing and getting ready to leave. And um, it felt like it sort of on the fringes of my awareness. And then as soon as I got down here, it was like all of a sudden I'm in a more conservative state, which also makes my sort of empathetic reading of what to do sort of funky. You know, I feel like before when I lived in New York, it was easier to like, okay, everyone else around me isn't wearing a mask or is, and that sort of can indicate how safe I should feel. And now that I'm in a space that is so different to me and um, a state that feels like it wants to be its own country still, it, it's really messing with my personal sense of security um, and um, sense of self in a strange way. And that uncertainty of what the fall will look like as a teacher and as a student um, is mm-hmm. very unsettling. Yeah. And I think that there's a part of that too that's like, I don't know exactly how to word it, but like an invasion of personal space, you know, like um, making sure mm-hmm. that I am personally safe, that my family is safe, that my, like, this is the first time that I've lived on my own. I've always had a roommate or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I've lived by myself, but mm-hmm. in a dorm, you know, so this is the first apartment that I've had to myself and making sure that that space is safe, you know, and even you said, Amanda, like trusting the very air, <laughs> um, right. like there is just so much uncertainty that it is not only uncertain, like, you know, this will be a new class that I'm teaching and that's uncertain, but I've also had that feeling before. Like I've had other teaching experiences where it's been like this, we'll just have to see how it goes. But there is so much uncertainty that feels like new uncertainty that it's not only like, how do we deal with uncertainty, but like, holy shit, there's this new piece of uncertainty that we will have to continue to grapple with. So, yeah, I would just say my answer is very similar to Mike's. Mm. Yeah, we are definitely 
still very much in the thick <laughs> of of this pandemic. Uh, you know, we were all, I think, when we recorded both of our <laughs> like both both episodes of your podcasts, like we were both hoping that by now we'd be easing up and all of that. But um, you know, it's it's not. Um, I by the time this comes out, this is this is not. You know, I don't know if I will have mentioned this already, but um, I am pregnant. <laughs> so so um, that has been preoccupying my mind. And then all of the things that go along with that with with. Yes, with covid, um, but also like just I, I've never been pregnant. I've never had a kid, you know, like this is like the So all of those just regular anxieties and we could talk probably for another hour about like, you know, mom, parent, horror stories that are like are very clear manifestations of like that anxiety, <laughs> like having devil children or whatever, <laughs> literally, figuratively. But, you know, and all of the concerns about having to like, you know, raise this person into like this brand new world kind of thing. So... Yeah, so that's I will say that's what scares me and also thrills me. Um <laughs> like right now, it's both of those and that's usually how I feel about horror. <laughs> like when I watch horror is both scared and thrilled. Yeah, so to kind of end on a more positive note, I guess. <laughs> what is thrilling you or like what what are you what yeah, what are you excited about? Like for the next few months, for the next year? Let's start with Sam. Uh, well, I, I usually write short horror stories, um, and I am working on my first novel now, so that feels uh, exciting, but also sort of weird. You know, I'll write a chapter, and, and it's horror, um, so I'll write a chapter, and then I'll be like, that was scary. So I'm like trying to like <laughs> continually scare myself, and Goosebumps has been a big part of that too, because I'm like, and, and Fear Street was great because I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what I love about horror. It's big set pieces and lots of fun stuff to look at and engage with and funky characters. And so I like I'm trying to imbue as much of that as possible into this book. And um, even like two pages will go by when I'm not doing that for myself. And I'm just like, oh, I'm a hack. <laughs> you know? So it's very much like <laughs> in that first draft space. But um, I'm excited. Man, two page. If I could write two pages before I thought I was a hack, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. I'll go a paragraph in. I'm like, oh, this is garbage. Yeah, like- it's very much that first draft space, and you know, you have a relationship with every piece that you write, right? And um, so this feels like my mm-hmm. first long term relationship that I'm like, okay, really got to make this work, novel. Like when you said this. It made me feel, you know, like <laughs> trying to like get through it. Yeah. It's fun. I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's um, sort awesome. of a fun world I'm playing with and I'm excited to be going at it. So, Yay. That's exciting. Mike? Well, writing a novel sounds really exciting. <laughs> and uh, I'm unfortunately not writing a novel. <laughs> and, um, I wish I were. Uh, but I, I think, well, there are a lot of projects in the pipeline. Uh, as I mentioned during my last podcast conversation with with Amanda and, and Casey. Uh, I am 
working on a book, well, actually on COVID-19. I actually have mixed feelings about that project because yeah. on the one hand, I really, I, I'm writing a book called A Plague. It's a co-authored book with me as lead author. Uh, it's titled A Plague for Our Time, Dying and Death in the Age of COVID-19. Wow. So it uh, looks at end-of-life narratives about end-of-life in a variety of uh, media forms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, I I guess I say I have a mixed feeling uh, mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, I'm excited to produce a project that's so timely and relevant, and and what I hope would somehow push against people's discomfort with that and open mm-hmm. up conversations about it. Because I feel like COVID-19, it has gone, it has spread like wire, wildfire, partly because of our death denial and yeah. our, our collective death denial, and which influenced our public health behaviors and adherence to them and so forth. So I'm really excited to work on this book and, and to really see it through completion. I, 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 mm-hmm. My co-authors and I signed the contract for it in October of 2020. Um, and if you recall, Amanda, that's the same week that I came down with COVID-19. Oh, yes, and it's, it's, I do. It, it's so strange to have, you know, be, be negotiating and finalizing a contract for a book on COVID-19 when you yourself were tested positive for COVID-19. Mm. But I, and I'm excited to see it through completion. I've made a lot of progress over the summer and I aim to mm-hmm. complete my basically my chapters for which I'm responsible and the introduction and conclusion and hopefully the entire, you know, my creating the through line across the whole book and across my and my co-author's chapters. So I'm excited about that. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the thing with this COVID-19 book is that there's, you know, we're all dealing with COVID-19 already on the daily. And because it's so much a part of my work, it mm-hmm. almost feels as if I have no escape from it. Sure. And my only real escape from COVID nineteen is entertainment media, horror, yeah. and fictional stories that I lose myself in. But anyway, I'm excited about that, and I am also putting together a proposal for a brand new book. On it would be an edited anthology. I've never done an anthology before, Ooh. and it it will be an anthology on suicide and popular culture. Wow. Cool. Okay, amazing. That's my next project. So I have these two things that I'm very much looking forward to. And mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean I get there's a there's also the memoir. I, I had written the memoir as part of my MFA thesis, revised it. It's also in the hands of an agent. But I understand that the literary world proceeds very slowly. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, you know, I be I'm hopeful, but at the same time I have to be patient with the memoir finding uh the best home for it, mm. but those are so. Well, I'm excited about a bunch of projects in the in the horizon. <laughs> I like that you That's started awesome. that all by saying like, "Oh, well, I'm not writing a novel, so I'm not as exciting. I'm doing all these other things." <laughs> 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 yeah, I know. That is awesome. I know. Well, I think it's because as a graduate of, of the MFA program, I and I jumped straight into a PhD program. Mm. Uh, Kind of like what you, well, no, you took it some time off. Yeah, I I graduated two years ago, so there was a a decent gap, but. So there's a buffer (laughs) there. I think it's, it's that it's, I I mean, I love my scholarly work and I I am passionate about it, but there's something about doing creative and literary work that I miss. Sure. That Mm. as a result of my academic responsibilities, I 
have not really had much time for. Yeah. So the thought of writing a novel is it's exciting to me too. I've always wanted to write a young adult novel oh, or a yeah. middle grade um, fiction. That yeah. would be awesome. Yeah. And I, I, I will eventually someday, um, once I have tenure maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> there you go. but but for the time being I, I can I will vicariously live through and relish the experiences of people I know, like yourself, who are writing this amazing <laughs> works of fiction. Oh my gosh. Yay. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to see that anthology on suicide and culture. That sounds really cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. And um, yeah, I mean, Mike, you have your book out now, uh, The Paradox of Suicide and Creativity, which is still available. <laughs> I don't know if it's in paperback yet. Um, it's not, it won't be for a while. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, um, it's with, who's the publisher again? I'll I'll put it back, back in the links. Oh, it's Roman and Littlefield's, um, Lexington imprint, which is the scholarly imprint. Okay, great. Roman and Littlefield. Great. So, yeah. So that's, that's a great book that was also started at Goddard, uh, different case studies on, Mm -hmm. uh, famous artists who, committed suicide and um you sam have many different publications <laughs> out, like many different <laughs> stories out do you want to highlight a couple of them uh, right yeah now? i think uh by the time this comes out i will have another story uh out in the dread machine i hope um <clears throat> and it's a baby horror so look out amanda Oh, Ooh, and, uh, very exciting. And then I have another story that I hope is coming out from a magazine called Press Pause Press uh, sometime in November, okay. which is a cool Ooh. little magazine. And they do not have a social media presence. They're all word of mouth. So <laughs> Press Pause Press, check them out. Nice. Press Pause Press. And um, yeah, you'll you'll announce it also on your website, yes. right? Yeah, all um, that stuff will be on my site. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And do you have any upcoming besides the? Th- these are big projects, obviously that you talked about, Mike. But was there anything else that you wanted to plug? Oh, I I'm trying to think if I'm working on little like articles. Little articles. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, not at the moment, actually. Uh-huh. So I'm really it's it's all the COVID nineteen book big stuff from from <laughs> this point until the end of the calendar year and yeah. laying the groundwork for that edited collection, which hopefully yeah. might have a a horror chapter somewhere in there. I'm so sorry. this I'm sure it will. This, this this conversation has just inspired me to at least make sure to include one chapter on maybe the representation of suicide in in horror media. Awesome. Well, thank you both for a very fascinating conversation. I'm excited for everybody to hear this in October. (laughs) Yeah. So it was great talking to both of you today. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yay. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. For more information about anything we talked about, please check the show notes. This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Council. It is produced, hosted, and edited by Amanda Faye Laxon. If you are interested in being a guest on the podcast or would like more information, please visit goddardalumni.com podcast. 
Please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.